Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, the second chapter, <coughs> verses 1 through 21. Hear now the word of our Lord. When the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we all hear declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, saying they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who have lived in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Pentecost, everybody. 
Did you uh, send out your Pentecost cards and um, we'll get done so you all can go to your Pentecost party and hide your Pentecost eggs? Um, This is actually one of the three major feasts of the church year. You've got your Christmas, you've got your Easter, and you've got your Pentecost. And uh, let's be honest, Pentecost kind of gets the short end of the celebration stick. Right? We really go all in for Christmas. We go all in for Easter. Uh, you probably wouldn't have known it was Pentecost unless I reminded you, right? Um, that one just kind of sneaks by us. And yet, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is no less important than the incarnation, than uh, Jesus coming to us in human form, like we celebrate at Christmas. It's no less profound than Jesus' death and resurrection. Because out of that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, out of what happened at Pentecost, the church was born. You and I are here because of what happened that day at Pentecost. It's an important holiday. And we celebrate it in many ways. We, uh, we, we wear red. We change the pyramids over uh, to red. Some churches like to have a birthday cake because it's the birthday of the church. We celebrate Pentecost. Pentecost is, is extra challenging for preachers, though. Because it's one of those, it, it, it comes up every year, and you've got to come up with something different to say. Right, And it's the same passage every year, and it's the same message every year. And how do, I, uh, how, how do you preach it in a way that, that feels like I've not heard it this way before, or I'm hearing it again for the first time, or that kind of thing. So I was really wrestling this week trying to nail it down. But every Monday, I have this kind of ritual. I'll, uh, I'll read the passage that I'm going to be preaching on, on Sunday, and I'll take out a little notepad, I'll read it slowly, and I'll just start writing questions, right? Like, I don't understand this. Why does it say this? Why does it say that? And I usually find that if I don't know something, chances are um, some of y'all don't know that thing, and if I kind of chase that a little bit, I'll kind of back into a sermon. I'll, I'll, I'll find something worth worth talking about, worth discovering. And so I did that this week, and I found out I had a lot of questions, and I actually brought them with me. And this is something, by the way, you can do at home, right? Just when you're sitting there doing your Bible study, just write some questions. And so uh, here's the uh, questions I had about the Pentecost passage. What's the Greek word for tongue? That kind of thing makes me curious. Does it mean anything else? You know, some Greek words mean multiple things. Did each hear in their own language because each of the 11 spoke a different language? That's something that occurred to me. Maybe like Thomas was speaking Spanish and, um, and Thaddeus was speaking Chinese and, and that's how you know, each heard in their own language. Or... Did they all hear the same sounds differently? And like those of you that are online, kind of like a Laurel Yangy kind of thing. Like they hear it differently. Um, 
That's all I'm going to say about that, I promise. All right. Um, uh, how did they know the disciples were Galilean? They said, aren't these people Galileans? Well, how, how did they know? Was it their accent? How, how did they know? Is that how you spell Galilean? Yeah, I had a couple runs at that and was having trouble spelling Galileans. It's the L's. Um, is it important that everyone gathered there was Jewish? Why did the mockers claim they were drunk? Did they only hear gibberish? In other words, were like the faithful, were they hearing one thing and, and the mockers were hearing gibberish? I thought that might be interesting. But the last question I had, what's a Pentecost? What's a Pentecost? Right? And I found out that's the one I probably ought to chase down. <laughs> what's a Pentecost? Right? We talk about it every year. We have Pentecost Sunday. Um, the tradition uh, that, um, that Crystal grew up in, like their whole denomination, they call themselves Pentecostal. She could probably explain what a Pentecost is to us, uh, but, but I won't make her do that. But I just sort of uh, started thinking, it sounds really important. All these people were gathered, um, uh, Jews from all around the world were gathered in one place to celebrate Pentecost. What were they celebrating? Why were they there? In other words, why would the Holy Spirit choose that day of all days? If I hear about a miracle that happens on Christmas, right? That gives all kinds of meanings to the miracle, doesn't it? Right? I, 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 I have certain associations. When we know that Jesus was crucified on Passover, right? That changes the way we think about the whole thing. Right? Jesus is the Lamb of God. Um, the, the Last Supper uh, is like the Passover meal, right? It, it deepens our appreciation and our understanding. So what does it mean for us that, that all of these wonderful things that happen, that the Holy Spirit descending on fire, that the, the, the tongues of flame appearing over the disciples' head, that them speaking boldly the Word of God and each person hearing it in their own language, what does it mean that that happened on Pentecost? What's the Pentecost? And so um, I decided to chase this down. And like all great pastors and theologians before me, I turned to Wikipedia, right? And, uh, and I'm telling you this, by the way, just so you know that I don't have like this super secret bat cave uh, like pastor library somewhere that I have to do a retina scan and, and that I dig into and I have access to all these tools in there that you don't have, right? You can chase down this stuff during your week. You can figure this stuff out. The, the commentaries that, that I look at are readily available to anyone, right? The Bible dictionaries that they... they sell at, uh, at, at my Christian bookstore, they sell at your Christian bookstore. But I chase this down. The word Pentecost is a Greek word that means the 50th day. And so it's what Greek Jews called this festival, the 50th day. Um, it's the festival of weeks, or Shavuot in the Hebrew. And we actually talked about Shavuot um, uh, earlier this year. 
it's okay that you don't remember it. But we talked about it just a little bit. Um, it was when we were reading the book of Ruth, because one of the things that observant Jews do, do on Shabuat uh, is that they read the book of Ruth that morning, because Shabuat marks the end of the harvest. And Ruth is a harvest story that happens around harvest time. And so, um, and so Shavuot marks the end of the harvest. Um, at the beginning of the harvest, you, you offer uh, a, uh, a barley offering. And at the end of the harvest, um, you, uh, on Shavuot, you offer two loaves at the temple um, that were made from the wheat that you produced in your harvest, two loaves of bread. And you're giving thanks to God for a wonderful harvest. Right? Thank you for supplying us with all this grain. Thank you for, for helping us this year. Uh, here are these two loaves of bread to symbolize that. So that's what they were in town celebrating. They were celebrating the harvest, a good productive harvest. And they would have celebrated, they would have offered those loaves of bread, and then um, they would have had like a Thanksgiving meal with their friends and family. It was a Thanksgiving kind of celebration. It was a celebration of blessings. And think about that for a second. The disciples in the upper room are celebrating Shavuot. They're celebrating the Festival of Weeks, the Pentecost. They're celebrating God's blessings. And that's when the Holy Spirit decides to show up. When they're celebrating their blessings. When they're celebrating what God has done for them. That's when the Holy Spirit shows up. Because they say on QVC, wait, there's more. This part's really cool. They're celebrating two things on Shabuat. They're celebrating um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the grain harvest, the blessings, everything we just talked about. But they're also celebrating God giving the, the commandments at Mount Sinai. Remember, we talked about this too, back when, when, when we took that journey through Exodus. Um, the, the, the people are delivered. Um, they, they walk through the Red Sea. Um, they're, they're freed from their captivity. And then, um, and then uh, they, uh, they, they wander for a little while, and then they get to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God reveals the covenant to them, reveals the law to them, the Ten Commandments and all those other rules, these, these things that will make... This, uh, this group of Hebrew slaves into the people of God, right? In other words, at Shavuot, they're celebrating their birth as the people of God. Pretty cool, right? You see kind of the symmetry, right? The Holy Spirit comes and, uh, and, and, and makes these disciples the people of God at Pentecost, just as at that first Shavuot, God came to Mount Sinai and made, the, made, made these, uh, these gathered Hebrews the people of God there. There's a beautiful symmetry why God chose this day. But wait, there's more. 
This, this, this is really cool. Um, let's go back and, uh, and, and look at, uh, at Exodus right quick. It's, um, it's Exodus uh, 19, uh, uh, starting with verse 16. And I promise I'm, re- like, I'm not trying to trick you, but you can look it up yourself too. Um, 19.16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with the thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood on the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. You catch that? The Lord descends in fire. At the first Shavuot, what happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit descends on fire. There's, there's the sound of a violent wind. There's a mighty trumpet blast. You see the symmetry here? But wait, there's more. Um, there's this tradition that was around during Jesus' day. And it, had, it, it, it was this story the rabbis told, and it had to do with uh, this question. See, in, in the book of Exodus, there, there's this funny language. It says um, the, 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 the um, Israelites were at the foot of the mountain. Moses was at the top. He was talking to God. And it says that, uh, that the, uh, the people at the foot of the mountain heard and saw everything that God had said. So the ancient rabbis sort of puzzled about this. Well, how did they hear it? If God was speaking at the top of the language and they were all the way at the bottom of the mountain, how did they hear it? Was God just that loud? Or how did they see it? What does it mean they heard and saw? What exactly did they see going on at the top of the mountain? How do you see God's voice? And so there were these two traditions that developed. The first one was about seeing, right? How did they see? And there's this tradition that developed that um, that the people that standing at the bottom of the mountain, that when God spoke, the words and the letters that God spoke, the speech that God spoke appeared in fire above the mountains so that everyone could see it, right? That's what it... That, that, that's what they said it meant when, when, they, when they saw what God said, that, that, that it was emblazoned in fire above the mountain. Now, the word for speech in Greek and in Hebrew is the same word for language, and it's the same word for tongue. Same word for tongue. In other words, at the Pentecost... The fiery speech appears over the disciples' heads. Just like they said it did on that mountain, right? Is that cool or what? Do you see the symmetry? This part's even better. So how did the people at the bottom of the mountain hear? Right? They were trying to figure this out. How did they how did they hear it? Right? Was God that loud? This tradition developed that they heard it spiritually. Right? That that they heard it in their minds and in their souls. And in fact, here's what, here's what the rabbis said. That uh, the people at the bottom of the mountain, the whole nation was, of, of Israel was assembled. And each person there heard it 
in their own language. They heard it in their own dialect. They said that the, the Torah that day was spoken uh, in 70 languages so that it, it, it would be heard and remembered forever. You see what I'm saying? Like, just like, just like at Pentecost, the, the disciples speak and every person hears it in their own language. That's what they said happened on Mount Sinai. That's pretty cool, huh? So it's like, it's this Mount Sinai experience all over again. The disciples, this new people of God, they've, they've been delivered through everything that happened at Easter, right? Just like the parting of the Red Sea, they've, they've been delivered. And, and they have to wait and they have to wander a little bit. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out in fire. And a new people of God is created. Cool, huh? But wait, there's more. There's one last thing I want to tell you about this, this Shavuot thing. See, there's a tradition that the disciples would have participated in that I think, if we kind of apply it to our own lives, has such a wonderful thing to teach us. And it's, it's, it's this tradition of, of counting the Omer. And here's what this means. So there's this place in Exodus, where it's, uh, in Leviticus, where it's talking about the festival of weeks. And, um, and God gives this commandment. He says, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheep of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. Real exciting, right? Here's what that means. Um, the day after Passover, you start counting, and you count down 50 days. That's why Pentecost is called the 50th day. You, you start counting, and then uh, when you've reached the end of your counting, when you got to 50 days, then you celebrate God's blessings at Shavuot. And you offer this grain harvest. And the tradition was that um, it was 50 days that uh, the, the Hebrew people wandered in the wilderness before God came to them at Sinai. So you mark off the 50 days. And here's how you do it. You're supposed to count every day. Now, if you're, if you're Jewish, your day starts at sundown. You know why? It's kind of cool too. It starts at sundown because there was evening and there was morning on the first day. And there was evening and there was morning on the second day. And there was evening, right? And so the day starts with evening through morning, right? And so, uh, so if, if you're Jewish, your day starts when the sun goes down. And, uh, and so the tradition, what you're supposed to do between Passover and Shavuot is each night... Someone in the house is supposed to count. And, uh, and they do something like this. They offer this blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to count the Omer. Right? So they'll start with that blessing, and then they'll say, they'll, they'll mark the days. Today is 17 days, which is two weeks and three days of the Omer. And they'll keep doing that till they get to 50 each day. Now, here's the thing. 
if you forget that night uh, and, and you wake up and realize, oh, we forgot to count the Omer last night. You're still in that 24-hour period, so you're good. So you can still count it, but you have to do it without the blessing, right? If you go a whole 24-hour period, um, you, so, so, so before you lose the blessing for a day, and the next day you can do the blessing again. But if you go evening and morning, the whole 24-hour period, and you forget to do the count, then for the rest of for for the rest of the fifty days you can't do the blessing, right? Is kind of like a little game, and so um, you have to be intentional. You have to keep it in mind. You can't forget, or you'll lose the blessing. You'll lose the blessing. See if this preaches for just a second, right? You're waiting. You're waiting to celebrate God's blessing. You're waiting to celebrate everything that God is doing for you. You're waiting to celebrate the movement of the Spirit. But in order, in order to keep that blessing, you have to keep it front of mind. You can't forget. You have to be an active participant. Right? It calls us into this kind of Holy waiting. This waiting that doesn't just sit around and, 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 and keep it out of mind until it happens, but this, this participatory kind of waiting. Well, when we're waiting for God to move, we're keeping him front and center, right? The, 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 that we're, we're acknowledging him day and night, Right? It's this holy kind of waiting. And this is what the disciples would have been doing. Right? Jesus tells them at the very beginning of the book of Acts, stay in Jerusalem and wait. Stay in Jerusalem and wait. And that kind of, like if you don't know anything about Shavuot, that kind of just washes over you, right? But, but what he's saying to them is, stay with all these other people here in Jerusalem who are waiting right, who are waiting, and you wait with them. You count the omer. You keep God's promises and, and, and God's blessings front of mind until the Holy Spirit comes, right? And that's what they do. They engage in this holy waiting, this participatory kind of waiting. And, and, and we picture, so the disciples are in the upper room, and they're waiting for Jesus, and we picture it kind of like think the Holy Spirit's going to come today, right? That kind of thing. But but that's not but that's not what they're doing, right? They're counting the Omer. They're 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 uh, they're they're engaged in what God is doing. In fact, you read the first chapter of the book of Acts, and they're getting themselves organized, so they're going to be ready. When the spirit moves, one of the first things they do is, is Peter looks around and says, hey, have you noticed how there's only 11 of us now? Because the other guy, you know, we need to do something about this. And so uh, they get themselves organized and, uh, and, and they go through this season of prayer and then they, uh, they wiggle it down to two candidates to be the 12th disciple and uh, and... Finally, actually by rolling dice, 
um, they, uh, they, they picked this guy named Matthias. So a little bit of trivia. Matthias was the 13th disciple, right? They, they pick him to take Judas' place. The point is, when they were waiting, they weren't just twiddling their thumbs. They were getting themselves ready. They were, they were engaged in preparation. They were keeping God's promises and God's blessings front of mind. Some of us this morning are waiting. We're waiting for the Spirit to move. We've got this unanswered something in the back of our mind that, that, that just kind of follows us everywhere, and we've been waiting for a while. And I think there's an important lesson here about what holy waiting is, about the kind of waiting that God blesses. And it's not just singing around, twiddling your thumbs until you get the thing that you want, right? It's keeping God's promises and God's blessing front of mind. It's participating. It's preparing. This is this holy waiting. It's the kind of waiting that you do in a theme park. When you go to like Disney or Universal or Dollywood or something, like you can't just uh, sit on a bench and wait for your turn on the ride, right? They're not just going to like call from down there, hey, you, down there, want to ride this, right? You actually have to get in line. You have to make progress while you're waiting. You have to beat back all these fears and doubts, right? That loop looks big, right? You've got to put that out of your mind. You've got to make progress. You've got to resist the urge to turn back, right? I'm not sure if this is worth it. The line's not really moving, right? You've got to do all of that. It gets hot. You're not always under that spritzy fan thing. Sometimes you are, sometimes you're not, right? You have to go through this, this, this waiting where you're making progress, but you're still waiting. And then finally you get there. You've been waiting for like 40 minutes and the ride is like 40 seconds. But you go, woo, 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 woo. And then you turn to your buggy when it's over and you're like, let's do it again, Right? That's the kind of waiting we're talking about, this holy, engaged waiting, where you're, uh, you're making progress. You know one of my pet peeves, my kind of church pet peeves? You ask someone to do something and uh, say, hey, will you, will you help out with recreation at Vacation Bible School this year? And they'll say something like, let me pray on that. I don't speak in tongues like the disciples, but I know, let me pray on that, means no. I've been around this long enough <laughs> to know they never get back to me, and it's just time to move on down the list while they're praying on that. But why, why is our default posture always, I'm just going to sit here in my chair until I feel God nudge me to do something? Why isn't our default posture... I'm going to do something while I'm waiting for God to tell me to do something else, right? Why, why, why do we assume the Christian life is just, you know, this is sitting in a chair somewhere going, in lotus position going, oh, until God tells us to do something, 
maybe if you don't hear a clear direction, right? If you don't hear uh, some divine mission placed on your heart of something you're supposed to do, um, maybe you just go join in someone else's divine mission for a while until you get your own, right? <laughs> just <laughs> participate in what's going on, right? Instead of waiting around, twiggling your thumb. This is this active, engaged waiting. I'm waiting for God to move in my life. I know he's going to do something. I'm keeping that blessing front and center, but right now I'm going to keep my feet and my hands busy. Right now, I'm going to do the work that's in front of us. That's the kind of waiting that God is calling us to. But waiting is hard, isn't it? We don't like to wait. We're waiting for like an elevator, right? That's right. We push that button. Pushing that button doesn't change anything, right? The elevator gears don't go, oh, you really want me to go. Okay, let's speed it up, <laughs> right? No, they just do what they're, what they're built to do. You pushing that button over and over doesn't change anything, but we don't like to wait. Uh, William just started um, uh, coach pitch uh, 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 baseball. He didn't do t-ball, um, but I, he's right there with the other because the thing they all have to learn that's hard to learn, especially when you've been doing t-ball, is you have to wait for the ball, right? You have to wait for it to get to you, the right spot so you, you can swing and hit it. It's hard for kids to learn, right? And coach pitch, your, your, your coach is pitching it to you, and they're just trying to send as slow a thing as they can over there to you, and, but, but, the, but the kids, they think they're getting like these 90-mile-an-hour fastballs, and they just got to swing as soon as, the, you know, as soon as they see the wind-up. So William, uh, he, he's having trouble with this, just like the other kids. And so um, when he's getting ready to bat, I just kind of, I'm not good at sitting in my folding chair. I know I should, but I just, I kind of get behind him. And I'm like, watch, watch this other kid. And it's like, see the ball going from the coach's hand to the bat. And we just stood there and we counted for a second. One, one thousand, pop. One, one thousand, pop. Right? And I was trying to get that in his head. Right? If, if anything, just count to yourself. One, one thousand, pop. Right? And, and, and he's hit a couple, by the way. He fouled one, and and one like like bounced like off his bat, like like a foot away from home plate. But he got to run, and and then on the next play he got to run again, and on the next play he got to run again, and then he got tagged on the way to home plate, and and he gets back in the dugout and he says to me, "Daddy, did you see me hit that homer?" <laughs> right. But the point is, the point is is we've got to wait for it to come to us, right? But we have to be ready when it does, right? We've got to wait, but we also have to be ready. And if we're just twiddling our thumbs, if we're not paying attention, we're not ready. But when we're in this holy, this active, this engaged waiting, then we're ready when the Spirit comes, and we're ready to move, and we're ready to react. And that's what God is calling of us to be ready and to be expecting. Think about, you know, that town that, 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 that 
had like a three-week drought and um, they were starting to get concerned. Some of the crops were dying. And so they decided to meet in their church building and, and they would pray. So the whole town meets in this church building. The pastor gets up in, in front of the town. He looks around and he says, we're not ready yet. Come back next week. And so uh, they go home and uh, the drought's getting worse. The sun's beating down. More things are dying. They come back the next week. Pastor looks around, not ready yet. Come back next week. Well, the third week, things are desperate. The ground's brittle, right? And they're worried, you know, stuff's never going to grow there again. And everyone's come back, and, and, and they're desperate, and they really want God to move in this town. And the pastor looks around and says, still not ready yet. And, and, and God just, just jerks up and says, Pastor, we're ready. Let's pray. And the pastor looks around and he says, we came here today to pray for rain. And not a single one of you brought your umbrella. You're not ready. How many of us are in this posture of waiting and this posture of expectation? And yet we're not ready. We're not prepared. We don't have this umbrella. If the spirit were to move today. We wouldn't know what to do with it. This holy waiting that we're called to as disciples is about keeping God's blessings front of mind. It's about expecting and believing God is going to be faithful to do what he says he is going to do. And that waiting, that waiting, that transforms us. After, at the end of that period of waiting, when the Spirit finally moved, when the fire was poured down, when, 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 when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that changed the disciples. The waiting changes us. And sometimes that's the point. Sometimes that's what God is doing in that period of waiting. He's maturing you and he's growing you and he's getting you to the point where when the Spirit does come, you'll know what to do with it. And so you've got that thing in the back of your mind that you're waiting for, that you're hoping for, that that you really want God to move in that situation. And you're wondering, why is this taking so long? What is going on? Maybe, maybe God is working in you right now, preparing you for what he's going to do. Maybe you're called to holy waiting, to praying, to fasting, to keeping your feet and hands busy, to helping out with vacation Bible school, whatever it is, right? God's calling you to get engaged and to be a part of that holy wagon. So I wrote down some questions for us. I believe if you take one of these questions with you and you chase it, it'll lead you somewhere. What are you waiting for? Love? Dream job? Retirement? This sermon to be over so we can eat lunch? What is it? A little too close to the truth. How is it you are longing for God to move? 
What are you doing in the meantime? Are you praying? Are you fasting? Are you remaining faithful to the task at hand? Do you have your umbrella? Are you ready for God to move? How has this waiting changed you? Could that be the point? Do you believe that God is faithful? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.